Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we explore the latest in blockchain technology and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna. And me, Frederick. In this episode, we sit down with Taylor from MyCrypto to talk a little bit about their backstory, security education, UX, and also we dig in a little bit into their tech stack. Before we start, we want to say thank you to our sponsor, Trail of Bits, the cybersecurity firm. Trail of Bits has released Slither, a static source code analyzer for Solidity. It's open source, runs locally, and instantly detects more than a dozen types of bugs and security issues in your code. You can actually find out more about this on their blog at blog.trailofbits.com. So thank you again, Trail of Bits, for supporting Zero Knowledge. And now here's our interview with Taylor. Today we're sitting with Taylor from MyCrypto. Hi, Taylor. Hi, so glad to be here. And we're going to be talking a little bit about UX, the journey that you've been on, what you've learned. And uh, yeah, I hope from this we can, I don't know, pull out some really cool tidbits of info that people can use when they're building products. Yeah, absolutely. Why don't we start out by talking a little bit about you and the project? Like, how did MyCrypto, I guess, back then, MyEtherWallet get started? And where were you coming from before then? So my Ether wallet, we actually launched in, I think it was August of 2015. So Ethereum launched and then like shortly thereafter, I think we pushed the first version of my Ether wallet live. And it was really a, it was just fundamentally a response to Ethereum launching and there being no like user interface for Ethereum. You could use the command line, which at the time you could use like Geth or the C++ client. And that was pretty much it. And um, a lot of people had these pre-sale files that had been emailed to them and they were really excited about interacting with Ethereum, but there was just no, unless you were comfortable with command line, there was just no way to interact. And so we made a really simple interface that allowed you to kind of generate a new wallet. And it was like built to be basically offline because, you know, everyone back then was super technical. And so you could generate a new wallet and then send your funds from like your existing wallet to your new wallet. And that was pretty much it. It was really, really simple. We didn't have any big grandiose plans for it. We didn't um, ever say like, okay, we're going to make this huge company or it's going to turn into this big thing. It was really, I would say like this... you know, an open source tool that we kind of threw out there on Reddit and came to the community and and that was it. Why, what got you excited about it? Where were you before this? So my like personal history with like Bitcoin and Ethereum is super funny because I actually got interested in Bitcoin in the first like Bitcoin bull run, basically on the way up. And then obviously everything came crashing down with Mt. Gox and, you know, just the price just literally just crashing to the floor. Um, but I never was super into Bitcoin. I was never, um, I just never connected with the community. Obviously, uh, in that bearish market was kind of a really angry time for a lot of people. And so I actually became really just interested in Ethereum because I was not attracted to Bitcoin. Like I just didn't ever connect with it on that deeper level. And so when the Ethereum white paper started being passed around and like, I remember these, 
they would do like the early Ethereum founders would do these like interviews, um, like on Skype or like Hangouts or like YouTube or like whatever it was at the time. And like you just have these like total just hardcore geeks in these like dirty living rooms sitting around talking about the future and the possibilities and uh, proof of stake and smart contracts and all these like magical things and so I just was really for whatever reason attracted to that Um, and also the Ethereum community was so much more welcoming than Bitcoin like it was it was just like a really, I think the early, early days of Ethereum were really magical. So um, that's how I kind of got into Ethereum. And then obviously when Ethereum launched and there was no, like I was not going to use command line. I was never, like there's no way I'm going to send all my money via this like <laughs> scary hacker tool or whatever. Like I was just, there's no freaking way. So, um, you know, my kind of gut was like, well, if I'm having this problem that other people are having this problem, like let's make buttons and let's make little fields that will check and make sure that address is valid and just really basic things, really simple things. So I think people obviously know sort of my Ether wallet and my crypto today. It's, it's, I'd, I'd say one of the most used, you know, apps or whatever you want to call it around this ecosystem. But how did you get there? Like from this initial simple open source tool to, like this this big thing that has millions i assume users <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's super interesting so it grew really organically and and again we never really we never really thought of it like a company like it was always kind of a side project in the early days and then in 2017 when you know the market picked up and the ico started happening we were just kind of the obvious solution for most people to use and icos were recommending us and everyone was like yeah just use my ether wallet my ether wallet my ether wallet and um we had to grow fast and like seriously step up our game because when you have a side project that suddenly has you know hundreds of thousands of users sending so much money through it every single day um you don't have you can't be like oh yeah i'll just work on this in my spare time Mm. and so we you know we we continued to like just build features that people needed whether that was things around the DAO and then like the split to etc and then obviously like for icos was a big you know we were constantly trying to just little things like the gas price versus gas limit Mm -hmm. and placing warnings so that people that were were these new people were entering the space and they they didn't care about anything except like getting getting rich off these icos and so basically kind of like tweaking our interface or tweaking our error messages or tweaking warnings to to try to get people to understand the dangers and the risks that they were involved with that that was basically 2017 and um you know support tickets were through the roof and you know, at some point it was like, okay, we need to hire people. We need to hire people like now, or we need to hire people like three months ago, but like, let's go. And so, you know, during that time it was just, it was hectic. It was chaotic. There was fires everywhere. Our infrastructure would go offline. Uh, People would have issues all the time. It was, it it was just absolute chaos. Did it also though, like inspire you? Cause like the thing I want to understand is like, what is, my crypto now because it's different right like it's i feel like it's a it's got a lot going on and i am curious like what got you there so i think that how i sort of feel about it in like my heart or my soul is like my crypto is like us grown up so instead of being this side project that's messy and not organized and um 
you know, kind of fly by the seat of our pants, my crypto is, is yeah, like leveled up or grown up a little bit. We have organization, we have people on our team, people have like specific roles and know their responsibilities and we work together really well. And it's not like internally, it's not chaos and externally. We're also just much more, we're focused on having processes in place and whether it's, you know, our internal security policies or, you know, how we do releases or how we decide what features are being built or whatever. It's like we have processes in place. It's not just, um, it's not just like, Oh, I think we should do this. Go, go, go. And like, Oh, let's push this feature live at 3 a.m. and hope for the best. Like we don't do that anymore. And that's, I think that's sort of the, the biggest evolution that we've seen. And then obviously now that it's, you know, now that the market is, has calmed down a lot and like the, the community is not as, as rapid as it was, we get to, we get to build much more thoughtfully and we get to make decisions, you know, where we actually weigh the pros and cons of features or, or, uh, the user experience or, you know, how the code is actually written and pushed live and those types of things. So it's been, it's been a remarkable evolution. I would actually want to dig in a little bit into your stack and infrastructure that you have. But before then, maybe can you just explain what is like your ideal user? Who who are you targeting like and, and who do you imagine that my crypto is for? So we have struggled with this since sort of day one. We have both ends of the spectrum. So we have these super technical people, these early Ethereum people. We have people that use our product for like true cold storage. I call them like the people that sit in a field like with their tinfoil hats on and their air gap machines and stuff like that. Um, and then we also have every new user that sort of enters the space, the people that um, are greedy and want to get rich off these ICOs and don't really fully understand the technology and don't really want to fully understand the technology. And maybe also some people who are just getting into the space for the first time and are not looking for ICO stuff, but don't know what they're doing. Right. Yes. Right. And so that's what we're seeing more today. And that's what I actually love new users entering the space today because they are just like a little bit more thoughtful or a little bit more interested in the underlying tech or the, the promises of the blockchain. Yeah. I love those people. So in terms of like our ideal user, I love working with new people. I love introducing new people to the space. I love helping sort of guide them and hold their hand. Obviously, you know, serving the more technical people or making sure that we do have those advanced features is important to us as well. But I think that as we're growing our product over the next couple of years, we are going to really sort of double down on on serving new users and people entering the space. And hopefully right now, I would say that we don't really target people outside the crypto world. Like our, our, the people that we're targeting, like our market, so to speak, is people that already have crypto or like really, really want crypto. There's some reason that they've kind of gotten to where they are already, mm. where in the future, I would love to be able to reach out to people that don't really know what crypto is and be like, Hey, this is the blockchain world. This wow. is what we're doing. And hey, if you go to my crypto, like it's going to hold your hand. It's going to take you through this journey. It's going to get you. It's going to help you understand what, you know, the promise of the blockchain, the pro- promise of cryptocurrency is. And also here's how you can safely hold it. Here's how you can safely mm-hmm. send it. Here's the cool th- like dApps or whatever you can, you can interact with. That's where I aim to be, but it's going to be a journey to get there, obviously. I think that's a great sort of initial story. And I think you have a fantastic opportunity as well to like over the coming years build out that 
sort of on-ramp so that you start with this super nice, friendly initial experience, but then, you know, you have an opportunity to build other tools like here's a downloadable thing uh, that runs a full node or runs a light client and here's that other you kind of can go off into different paths off of that initial experience. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I do want to like bring up that point is um, we are dedicated to like at our core, like keeping things as decentralized as as possible. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that I have to explain to people sometimes is that yes, Coinbase as an on-ramp is fantastic, but it, it moves a little bit away about a, a little bit, further away from the ideal blockchain um, ecosystem, right? Like, yes, it's yes, it's easy for people to use because it has that username and the password and it has blocks on your withdrawals and stuff like that. But we're not trying to be Coinbase. Like, we're trying to be an on-ramp that also is decentralized and you're not, we're not going to hold your money and, um, and those types of things. And so, you know, when we look at the other sort of things being built in the space, whether that's just massive improvement on the clients, uh, like clients, you know, those types of things, we're definitely interested in in building or integrating those into our products so that we can have both. Like we want the best of both worlds. Like we want to have our cake and eat it too. You want an easy <laughs> on-ramp for a lot of people to get into it and yet keep it super decentralized and sort of put that into the spirit from the start. Right. And I think that we can do that. I think it's going to take a little bit more work than just saying, hey, we'll hold your money and we'll give you a username and password. But at the same time, I think it's worth it. I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about the tech stack. I think it makes sense to talk about it now. Like what is, what are the different levels of my crypto today? That's an excellent is it, question. Is it a huge question or? <laughs> it's not really. It's, um, okay. So my crypto, we have sort of the core code base, which is all React and TypeScript. And, uh, it's a very fresh code base. We've built it with maintainability in mind. We built it with, um, we're trying to be even better, but like open source, getting open source contributors, being part of like a larger community. So you don't necessarily need to be on our team to be able to contribute and improve our product. And then we have, so we have the website, which is like mycrypto.com. And then we have the desktop application, which is for, it's an Electron app. It's for Mac and Windows and Linux. And that is probably where we're going to focus most of our energy on is really improving the desktop app. Because what we found with the website is that it's so dangerous for the individual user. Like it's... um private keys and the web don't belong together. And I learned this the hard way because I thought in the early days, I thought, oh, the reason you don't put your private key on a website is because the people who run the website will eventually steal all your money. And since I was running this website and I knew I wasn't going to steal your money, I was like, oh, it's safe. No, like that was completely wrong. The reason you don't put private keys on the web is because there are so many attack vectors. So as we've seen, you can have malicious Chrome extensions. You can have like the internet at its core attacked. You can have the DNS system attacked. And it's very, very easy for a site that looks exactly like our site, but with a little bit of extra code to basically steal people's money. With the desktop app, there's obviously like still some risks, but if you successfully install the desktop application, then you're good, right? Like you 
you just have to do it once and then you can return again and again and again and the code's not going to change. We're going to trust it. Like that's great. And there's also some fun things that we can do with desktop applications. Obviously, there's like information that can persist better than the web. So we can save things like your accounts or uh, your settings or your preferences and, and they'll stick around for, for longer than a website. And then obviously the big discussion internally right now is, is mobile and mobile is such a big part of everyone's life. So can we do that successfully? What does that look like? Do we do react native or do we go full native? Those types of questions. So this is like the, the JavaScript, the app part, but when you like create a transaction in my crypto, it has to go somewhere. So where's like the back end part of the stack? Right. So we run our own nodes. Um, I think we are split pretty 50-50 between Geth and Parity right now. We use AWS for all of our infrastructure. It's pretty robust. One of the reasons that we do run our own nodes is because um, as much as I love Etherscan and Infura, I can't like bear to like rely on them, you know, along with the rest of the ecosystem relying on them. We do actually provide like as an individual user, you can actually switch between the different node providers, which is cool. That again, like helps with decentralization. So if for some reason our infrastructure were to go offline or I were to disappear, or the company were to shut down, um, you could still use the app because you could switch to Infura or Etherscan or your own custom node. I was just going to ask that as well. Yeah, I think, can you do that from the website or only the desktop app is like switch to your own local node? Yeah, you can do it from both. And then one of the cool features that we're actually discussing and I'm hoping to get into like a upcoming sprint is um, the Parity Light Client. We can actually embed in the desktop app. And what that would look like is essentially um, until it's synced, we would have you connect to you know, our node or our infrastructure. And then once it was full, the light client was fully synced, we could basically have you use your own uh, light client within, within the desktop application. And again, that's like, we're just leveling up on the decentralization and that's ideally where we'd love to be. I think that's a great place to be. Yeah. I mean, one of my personal big concerns is exactly what you're saying that we keep making these sort of uh, convenience trade-offs and essentially end up in a place where we might as well give Infura a Postgres database and call it a day. <laughs> I've definitely had that thought before. And we're we're quite close with the Infura team and I love them to death. And I think that they are also on board with trying to decentralize. Like they don't necessarily want to be this just, you know, the almighty ruler of everything infrastructure. And so I'm hoping that we can all work together and build, you know, a better ecosystem and and build a more decentralized way of handling all these things. Could they decentralize themselves, you think? I think they're there. I mean, I can't speak for Infura, but I think that they are working on some things or trying to um not only decentralize like their own infrastructure, but, you know, things like light clients or, you know, different endpoints or things like that, because it's just, yeah. Yeah, I think they are working on some interesting things. I mean, I don't know how much they're into this particular thing. I think they're, they actually have some, some part of their crew working on this. So uh, in a world, like in an ideal world, everyone runs their own light clients, but in that world, someone needs to serve those light clients, right? And right now, Infura has this massive infrastructure that they offer for free or like off the back of consensus paychecks, I assume. But uh, that's obviously not sustainable. So how do they build a sustainable business? Well, they could build a sustainable business by offering micropayments by serving like like to serving like like clients. So like clients would pay to 
Infura to like use their nodes so they can be sort of a backbone provider. But then, you know, if they do the things the right way, then anyone can participate in this network with their own full node and also earn money. So I think that that is sort of the ideal world, in my opinion. Yeah. And I mean, that's the thing is that, you know, going back to what I said earlier about how welcoming and like great the Ethereum community is, it's like you can have, you know, in Fura, you can have this, you know, they're, 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 Ethereum's running on Infura. Like it really is. Right. But Infura is not like, okay, let's, let's keep it this centralized. Right. They're not sitting there being like, we want to be in this position. They're, they're saying, Hey, what can we build? What can we do? What can we, you know, how can we build the future that's more decentralized? And I think that's really remarkable because it's very easy for them to be like, okay, we're good. Like we're running this, like, you know, we've got the world in the palm of our hands. Like, let's keep it like that. And instead they're more focused on continuing to build, continuing to, to grow the Ethereum ecosystem. And then also, Hey, like, you know, let's get to our decentralized roots and, and figure out how light clients can be usable for everyone and all of that stuff. I always find that trade-off so interesting in this space where it's like these projects have become more and more successful but then start to take on the centralized feel. And unlike anywhere else where the more successful you are, the hungrier you are for more success. Right. In this space, all of a sudden it's like you're successful. You're sort of becoming the focus. And so often you hear these projects kind of be like, yeah, but I don't want to be the focus. I want the focus to be spread out. It's so it's different. It's kind of counterintuitive. Yes. But it's clearly like, it it derives from the philosophy that I think a lot of the people have had from the start. Right. And that's what I think one of the most interesting questions that I'm asked from people that are sort of in the more traditional world is like, so what's your moat? Like if all your code is open source and you're, you know, you're game to teach anyone how to use any product in the space and where, where's the moat? And I have to say like the moat, I guess, quote unquote moat is like one, I don't really want to have a moat. Like <laughs> I don't really think in terms of, okay, like let's keep other people out and like let's hoard this data or let's hoard this uh ip or like whatever like i don't want that instead i think the the sort of the moat in in the sense of retaining users is like the trust and the reality is is that you know being trusted and being reliable and being part of the larger community if you think about it like that the reality is you don't have to like trick users into sticking with you or trick people into working with you and like hoarding their data so that it's really hard for them to leave it's like you know, you can actually gain trust by having your code open source. That's actually going to level you up in terms of, you know, your bigger moat or whatever. Mm. Um, And it is flipping everything on its head, but that's what this world is kind of doing. So like, let's just keep on doing it. I think one of the big topics we want to cover in this conversation is UX. And I want to start diving into the actual user experience, the things that you've learned along the way. And maybe we can start with, you sort of mentioned this, you, you touched upon it, but like early horror stories, what <laughs> shaped your kind of view of the, of the space and your, the view of the product? That's such a good question. So the early days were definitely all about like responding. Like we were not being proactive. We were a hundred percent reactive and most of our reactions and the, the features that we built or the improvements that we made were in direct response to people screwing up really, really, really badly and losing all their money. <laughs> so I would say that most features on the website, most of the warnings you see, most of the the knowledge base articles that we have are a direct response to somewhere, someone somewhere doing something like just terribly, terribly wrong. 
And one of the things that caught us really, really off guard was just how badly people can screw things up and the things that we take for granted, whether that's like, I understand that we're not holding your funds or that you can't recover your password. The things that I just took for granted, people entering the space don't. They they carry with them all the things that they've learned from how the world currently operates and they just assume, they don't even ask the question, they just assume that this world is going to operate in the same way. Do you think password recovery was like one of the first big ones? Yeah, definitely. Like, one of the, the yeah, not, I, w- I would classify it as like not properly saving your shit. So whether that's your private key or your password or um, even just like that wallet that you just generated and you just never saved it or you never backed it up or you took a picture of it on your phone and then your phone broke and you're like, oops, it was, you know, those types of things. And we got a lot of people requesting um, us to help them like regain access to their account. And the reality is, is that we just can't. Like we don't have any of that information. Therefore, we can't recover whether it's your password or your private key. Like we don't, we can't help you. That's such a, like a flip in people's mentality, right? Where like at Parity, we've had the same issues, even like with our UI, which is like reasonably complex to download and get going and like work with. We've had people like email us, hey, can you like reset my password? All the time. No, we're not a service provider. Like you're, you've downloaded a piece of open source software. Uh, and, and like if you're running a website, it must be, you know, a hundred times more difficult to convince someone that, no, actually, we don't store this in a database in the back end like other websites do. Exactly. And that's what um, the our infamous, infamous onboarding modal, which is like this, it's shorter now, but it used to be 10 slides that was basically <laughs> yelling that. at the user. <laughs> that's the, that onboarding modal was literally a response to, to try to get it through people's skulls that like this is how the world works now. And so one of the things that we did, because I learned that So one of the things that that onboarding modal attempts to do is instead of just telling people and like basically hitting them over the head and being like, back up your keys, back up your keys, back up your keys. We try to help people understand why they need to back up their keys and why we can't recover them. And the way that we did this was um, the language was like, we're not a bank. We're not, you know, we're, we're not this centralized entity. You're going to be the manager of your own funds and you're going to be in control. And we found that people, if they were able to grasp that they were, they were in control and that they were, you know, basically their own bank, that they had an easier time understanding, oh, of course I then need to properly back up my stuff. And of course they can't reset it. So that was one of the things that we learned was if they understand sort of the underlying architecture of the blockchain, that they tend to be uh, more understanding of of why they need to back things up and then why we can't recover them. And then obviously the other big challenges with that we're trying to address in the onboarding model are like the scams and the phishing websites and um, that this is like a dangerous world and there are people trying to trick you all the time and don't do that. <laughs> that one's a harder one though, right? Because like if you are fished, you are just on another site that will not warn you that that is happening to you. <laughs> right, right. And we had tons of warnings. We had warnings all over the site. Um, we had like this big red bar at the top that said like, always check the URL, always check the SSL, the- like pointing straight to it like you look check it read it you know and it blew my mind because in the you know in the early days they would switch like one letter or they would have like a letter with like a little accent over it or something but 
we would still have people report getting fish from URLs that were completely different. And it's just like, you know, one of the reasons that we're pushing people towards the desktop app now is that I realize like people aren't going to check the URL. They're just not, you know, and even relatively smart people, they can make a mistake once, right? They can have that slip their their mind once and, and it only takes once to lose your money and that that really sucks. And then the scams, I think, are one of the hardest things to protect against and why we're seeing so many of like the giveaway scams on Twitter and, and those types of things because they take advantage of human nature. They take advantage of like this urgency or this scariness and then obviously capitalizing on the greed that I think. FOMO and stuff. Yeah, you know, of if you do this and you do it right now, you can get free money. Like who doesn't want free money? Yeah. How were people mostly fished early on? Like or over the last two years? Is mm-hmm. it usually Reddit? Is it where is that where are most where are you finding most of those things happening? So it evolves, it changes. Early on, I think the first like real uh trend in phishing was these Slack DMs. So if you remember, every ICO had their own Slack. And um Slack was not really set up to protect against like malicious actors in your own slack um so people would just like mass dm everyone in the slack and some of these slacks had like you know 15,000 30,000 100,000 people in them so these bots would come in and just dm everyone and and they again would capitalize on like the fomo right and they would say like Hey, uh, make sure you get into the ICO early, 20% get discount. And then they would link out to like a fake my ether wallet. Or we were even seeing like fake ICO sites that would have a, uh, an address switched. So instead of like status, um, it would be like status with two S's or something, you know, something bizarre. And then it's evolved into more recently, it's these Twitter giveaway scams, which I'm sure you've seen where, uh, fake Vitalik will tell you that there's a 10,000 Ether giveaway and, you know, go, 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 send us all your money or put your private key on this website. And and this is why you have all the names like first name, quote, not giving away Ether last right. name. If anyone doesn't know that, because I mean, I'm sure someone entering the space might be just like, why is that everyone's Twitter <laughs> handle? Yeah, because yeah. <laughs> literally there's like, there's just these, and there are hordes of bots. Yeah. And I mean, they, I love watching them, to be honest, because they do, they change and they evolve and they find something that works and they just like go right. so hard at it. And all you can do is is try to educate people up front because once they're in the space and once they're on Twitter, once they're in the Slack um, and the scammers are attacking, like if they don't know to be on the lookout for those things already, then you've already lost them and they've already lost their money. I remember, so during the Polkadot sale, once the, once the website went live, I think two hours later, a copy copycat called Polkodot mm-hmm. came out and they just ripped the website but not the styling so it was like a really ugly version yeah. of what we had built. It was, this is what blew my mind <laughs> boggled my mind was the fishers and the scammers, they're not good at coding or like copying, like they don't have the attention to detail they would like, the, the code that they inject or add to a phishing website is just so janky sometimes it won't work like sometimes they would be like stealing private keys except like we would look into it and like they're not stealing private (laughs) keys because like they have an error in their code but yeah it was hysterical (laughs) but like you said like the styling just wouldn't be there or whatever and yet and this is still blows my mind and yet people would still fall for it yeah Yeah. and that's 
what like we you know i would just bang my head against the wall some nights because i was like how it sort of brings back that that aspect of like what are the types of users who are really deal with i was telling the story to anna earlier like i i started a fintech company many years ago and like we were selling software to financial advisors who are not the most technically inclined people and basically there were people who like had only used an intranet sites like their whole working lives so they'd never logged into a site they didn't they've never seen a login form because it was all intranet so the first time they were using our products like what what is this thing why do i have to enter my email and what's the password and like what are these things and like they've never registered for a website and so it's, it's like it's a completely different world that these people live in and like it's not weird that they get fooled by a site because they just trust that yeah this site says that it's a sale i'm sure it is <laughs> and i think the the first time you enter into the space i mean i experienced this it was you do sort of you are stumbling a little bit in the dark for a while you don't know who's legit there's all these shiny people <laughs> shouting stuff at you and you're kind of like I, where where's the core and because a lot of the history is just being written right now and i think the like the more authentic players like i think if you if you do spend time on it they do emerge but when you first arrive you just don't know and i i can kind of sympathize with those folks that just arrive and they've not seen this kind of scam like you said the the scammers are not that sophisticated either (laughs) i mean it's just sort of like everyone is new to the space do you know of any like and this is a question to both of you guys but do you know of anyone who is sophisticated who's fallen for one of these so i have i won't use his name because i don't know if he like wants me to call him out like this but one of the guys that's now like one of the most active people sort of fighting the fishers the reason that he sort of like has this passion for protecting people now is that he originally got fish and he was he works on a company that is in this space he's very smart he's very passionate he's very empathetic and the reality was is that he just had a like a momentary brain fart you know and missed the yeah it's just right or something and that's what that's one of the reasons that we're moving you know away from the web and into desktop is because i realize it's not just quote-unquote like new people or stupid people or whatever you want to call them like it's not it's people that have a momentary last lapse in judgment or people that you know don't don't realize that this is a scam or you know um it, it just it's so it's too easy So it's, you know, it's a shame and, and it's one of the big reasons that, so the reason that we're like basically going full bore on desktop and pushing everyone to our desktop app is that I realized we were banging people over the head, like with this wrencher, just like, don't put your private keys on websites. Don't put your private keys on websites. Always check the URL. Always check the SSL cert. Don't have malicious crime extensions. Blah, 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 blah. But you were still allowing people to put their private key on your website. So we're shouting at them, but then we're training them to go to our website and paste their private key. And like, yeah no shit people are gonna have trouble with that and even though again like kind of turning things on its head we were basically like yeah we're gonna remove private keys the easiest way to access your wallet the most uh, the way that most people interact with our website uh we're gonna force you guys to download the desktop app so if you go to our website right now you can't put the private key on that was like a hard decision for me to make because it goes against everything i've ever thought about in terms of user experience because 
we should be removing barriers to entry. We should be making it as easy as possible for people. The problem with having things that are as easy as possible is that it's also really, really easy for them to get fished or to get scammed or to have that momentary lapse and, and enter their private key on a fake site. And yeah, there's, you know, we're raising the bar a little bit by forcing people to download the desktop app. But, you know, I wish we had done it earlier, to be honest, because I can't imagine how much money would have been saved if we had. I almost wonder, like, think about UX philosophy generally. It tends to be make it so easy that, like, a kid can use it or mm-hmm. make it so easy that a new, like, just think general UX for mobile or web. Mm-hmm. It's like, make it so obvious. And I wonder if that hasn't just made a generation of lazy ass users okay i have this theory because <laughs> now like why is it that people aren't reading and paying attention it's because it's been made for toddlers because the internet as we now know it like web 2.0 the facebook's and the google's and the apples they have mastered the art of like you can't actually screw anything up so there's always yeah. an undo button there's always a customer support rep you know, willing to help you. There's always like, there's no such thing as permanent loss. And because of that, yeah, people just assume that, Hey, there's going to be that big undo button or Hey, I can call someone. And when there's not, it's like really, really mind boggling. But I also think there's something. So I think it might be like Gmail is to quote unquote blame. Um, Gmail spam filters so good right? Like you don't ever see spam. If you're in my generation, like you don't, you've never been bombarded by like the Nigerian print scams or the people offering you free money. My grandmother, she knows that's a scam. Like she knows that if someone's offering you free money or if you get a link to your banking site, like she knows not to click. The younger generation, we never had to like learn how to build our own filters in our minds because Gmail was just like, oh, we'll just delete it for you and we'll just hide it for you and we'll just automatically warn for you. And so then when we are promised free money or like, you know, 10,000 Ether giveaway, we haven't installed that filter in our brain like my grandmother has. Whoa. So you actually think it's the younger generation that's more susceptible? In some aspects, yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't think that my grandmother could get into crypto successfully right now, but I also think that if she did get into crypto, she would laugh at the scammers in their faces and be like, you're not giving me free money, you idiot. Like, (laughs) why would anyone fall for that? If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Right, right. As an aside, one of my favorite uh, and pieces of entertainment is when people scam scammers Mm, so there's like youtube channels with uh all this stuff like it's it's amazing i love it but there's a a famous sort of uh i can't do justice here so i'll just do a short story google solidity honeypot the concept is basically you put out a smart contract that has some ether in it and then you go to like a helpful support site or something you give someone their pri- your, your private key and then they look at the contract and like figure out, oh, you can't transfer this. Like you say, oh, I have problems like transferring this money. I can't get it back. Can someone help me? Here's my private key. Please help me send, this to, send it to this address. They figure out that there's no gas uh, in the contract. So they need to send some ether to this <laughs> oh, contract yeah. to like have enough gas in there to be able to send this money to themselves. So they transfer some ether in to try to steal it but then basically just transfers that money straight to the person who put it out i'm surprisingly okay with this <laughs> like if you're gonna go try to steal money and you get you get caught and they gas. steal your money like 
<laughs> I don't know. That's karma. Instant karma right That's there. <laughs> so the evolution has gone from website to the desktop app. Mm-hmm. Is that actually safer? Because aren't there like, and I'm going to give an example. Like I know a few, maybe a, a month ago or two months ago, MetaMask had this problem where they were down for like just a few hours on the on the app store mm-hmm. and some copycat came up and looked mm-hmm. the same and actually was also a phishing app this time or a phishing chrome extension mm-hmm. so is it safer so the the biggest difference between uh like a website or the desktop app or even a website and a chrome extension is that on the website every time you visit it you have to get the url correct so Ideally, you'd be using a bookmark that you created yourself, but if you click a link and that link's a phishing link, you're screwed. If you mistype it, you're screwed. If the the DNS has been hacked or the registrar's account has been hacked, um, you're screwed. Um, every single time you visit it, you have to successfully visit the correct website. Uh, the website has to be the same, so the person creating the website can't have pushed malicious code. Uh, they can't have had their personal registrar account, like their GoDaddy or whatever, hacked. And then also, like we saw recently with my Ether wallet, there's this thing called the BGP hack. And it basically pushes a fake version of the site, not because anything of my Ether wallet did, not because their registrar account got hacked, but because the way the internet at its core and the DNS system at its core is set up, they were able to basically like push a website that was fake through like oh the tunnels God. of the internet. So with a desktop app or a Chrome extension, if you install it once correctly, if you, you know, if you click the original link to download it correctly once, every time you return to it, you no longer have that risk. Um, you're not relying on the DNS system. Um, like once you've installed it, you're not relying on the DNS to serve the same site every single time or the same application every time. So that reduces that attack vector. There are downsides. So, you know, if you're in the app store, there can be fake apps and people can be mistaken that way. With Chrome extensions, they do auto update. You can like as a user, you can go and turn that functionality off and manually update them, but most people don't. So if someone were to uh, you know, get the credentials of like the MetaMask team, they could hypothetically push like a malicious version with the desktop app. Like we don't have the auto update functionality. So, you know, when, if there's a, if there's like a new version, it just lets you know, there's a new version, you should go download it, but it doesn't, um, it doesn't like push new code automatically. Um, and that's again, to reduce that attack vector so that we have to like secure very specific things, but we don't have to secure, like we don't, there's, there's no way for us to like, push malicious code or or non-malicious code for that matter to everyone at once and that's i think powerful i mean then you also have like the you can do app signing and you you have Mm -hmm. a few extra like security measurements that you can take in a desktop app there's also like for all it's you know evil or whatever people want to call it like the mac app store and the ios like app store they are very good at not having scam apps on it. Yes, um, exactly. They're not perfect, but they're way better than the internet. Right. And that's what like in the Chrome extension, you know, store specifically with MetaMask, you know, it's much easier to detect that phishing Chrome extension because it has way less downloads. It has like probably no ratings, et cetera. Where if you look at the real MetaMask, it has like over a million installs and it has, you know, a, a ton of reviews and a ton of ratings. And it's those little 
the little details that you get in the app stores that you don't get with a website are are really, really powerful. So we're talking about a lot of the different ways that people have been fished or been scammed, but and maybe this is like a bit of a, I don't know what the word is. It's like, it's kind of sick for me to ask this, but I'm really curious. What, what is, what's the worst scam you've heard of? Like the most brutal. So it actually has like nothing to do with our site or anything, but the worst sort of case of lost funds was, it was, it was probably a couple of years ago. And, um, this guy was running sort of a custom mining sort of setup where it sounded like he sort of had a pool, but it was all of his own devices. So he had like a few different computers or devices that were all mining and were connected in one way or another. And in order to successfully do that, he had to do some custom, um, setup. And one of the custom things that he did actually left his, um, account basically insecure to the outside web. And there's these bots that basically go around and ping all the, the different nodes and different things that are online and say, Hey, are you unlocked? Um, or Hey, do you have any funds in that wallet that's unlocked on your account or whatever? And this guy had a lot of ether in his account on this online computer that had an open endpoint. But what sucks the worst is that the attacker wasn't actually able to like just outright steal the funds, right? So he was like paying his endpoint like over and over and over again. You could see it was there. You could see it had funds, but he couldn't get them until the guy who like the owner of these nodes, um, until he went to send a transaction. And the way that it works is that it basically like opens up for like something like a second or two seconds. And so, and this is what makes this so painful is that he went and did the best practice when you're sending a lot of funds around, which is you send a test transaction and you make sure it arrives successfully. So he, uh, he went and he sent a test transaction for like, I don't know, one ether or something. Um, and that one ether got sent, but then the attacker was able to send the rest, like the, all of his funds to the attacker's address. Wow. And so he was sitting there going like, oh, I just sent one ether as a test. It got there successfully. And he goes and he looks in his account and like the thousands of other ethers are just gone. And that was like just so, it was so painful for me to like hear his story and watch it and like try to have him decipher what happened because he was obviously very intelligent. He had this whole setup. He knew command line. He had this network of computers. And I think the thing that sucked the worst was if he had been an arrogant little asshole and sent all of his funds without doing a test transaction. So if he had gone against best practices and been like, yo, let me just send all this shit. He actually probably wouldn't have lost his money because it would have gotten sent and then the attacker wouldn't have anything to steal. And I think that sucks is that when you see people trying to be careful, follow best practices, they know what they're doing. They know how to, you know, these things. And yet they still have like some little slip up or some little thing that's insecure. I think that's probably like the thing that hurts the worst for me to watch. What about you guys specifically? Do you, I mean, maybe there's a lot, but. I think the one that hurt the most in general was the, just the, the phishing sites that, that at the time it was my ether wallet, just the my ether wallet clones. And there were so many of them and it was just, Every single day, like clockwork, they would just spin up new URLs and we would have, we had lawyers trying to take them down. We had like people that do this for a living trying to take them down. I'd send like, per, I'd personally send like copyright and DMCA and like, this is a malicious site things to all the registrars and all the hosts. 
And no matter how many times, like we would have one go down, there'd be another five pop up and one go down, another five pop up. And it was just, it was just insane. And one of the things we actually built during this time is one of our like kind of side projects still to this day. It's called Ether Scam DB. Um, it's about we're going to change the branding and stuff to be Crypto Scam DB because it's grown a lot. But it essentially is a way for people to report malicious URLs. And it's not just like my Ether wallet or my crypto. It's any malicious URL in the space. It reports it. And then we have this whole system that like takes a screenshot of it, analyzes the code. It connects it to other phishing sites. Obviously, we can do takedowns very easily. We can do, um, you know, all the different ways to take down a website. And so we can not only track the different fishers and the different scammers, but we can also then take action and it'll continuously kind of ping out and be like, oh, it's still online. It's still online. We should follow up and try to get this one taken down. Um, and then obviously when it goes offline, it gets labeled as offline. So that's probably one of my favorite tools that we've built because it's, it's just a remarkable tool. And then um, it also gives people who have been scammed a way to um, put yeah put their information let the world know let people that care know this is a site that's online right now that it, that is stealing money these are the ether addresses or the bitcoin addresses associated with this url um, and hopefully you know ideally at some point in the future one of these guys will slip up and you know the bad guys only have to slip up once and if we just keep watching and keep tracking you know, at some point their identities will be known and something bad will happen to them and they'll be caught. And not only will they be caught for the one website, but they'll be caught for the, the their entire collection of website because we're tracking that and we're linking them together. Has anyone been caught? Not that I know of off the top of my head. I think, I mean, there's obviously like the Mt. Gox, allegedly the Mt. Gox guy or the money launderer. I don't exactly know what that, how that flushed out in the end, but, um, Again, that was like, you know, a few very persistent people were tracking that money for years and years and years. And eventually it led to an identity. And I don't think like like I said, the bad guys only have to slip up once and their entire world will come crashing down. And so we just need good people, you know, just just with their eyes open, watching and watching and watching and waiting for them to slip up. This touches obviously quite a lot on uh, user education and, you know, you're talking about proving or like showing what is a scam and, and tracking that. But what other education aspects like have you guys done? What do you think should be done in this space? So ideally, ideally, like at the core, the user experience should be probably more similar to what people are used to. So whether that's the username or the password or the fact that you can recover this information or um, those types of things, I think that's going to be one of the most important things that that develops. The problem right now is that I don't necessarily see the problem as the private key itself. Like a lot of people say like, oh, like you can't expect people to manage their own private keys. I don't necessarily agree with that. But what I see the problem as is that when you give these people this really core piece of information that can't necessarily be protected with like two factor and you can't have the password reset or you can't have, you can't recover it. Um, that's the problem. So I think that moving forward, one of the biggest improvements to the, the core user experience of crypto is going to be some sort of system, some sort of, um, whether it's a smart contract or a series of smart contracts or just a, a way of organizing private keys that you have a more traditional sort of authentication mechanism where you can have 
not necessarily the exact same experience of like two factor, but a way of um, using multiple devices to approve a transaction before it gets sent. Um, Alex Vandestand obviously has has shared this concept where you still use private keys, but the private keys actually don't have any funds in them. So it doesn't actually matter. And I think that's one of my favorite sort of visions for the future right now. There's also, you know, smart contract mechanisms where you have, you know, a series of keys and um, you need to use maybe one key to send a small transaction, but two keys to send a larger transaction. And any of the keys could, um, like if you were to lose access to one of the keys, any of the other keys could basically shut down the account. Um, and then you need all these keys plus this additional information to recover access to the account. And I think things like that are going to be how the, the future kind of pans out because that's, in my opinion, you can do it in a decentralized fashion where people are in control, but they also have the ability to, uh, recover their, their keys or their access to their funds. They have the ability to, uh, like revoke access to their funds. So like shut down the account. Um, and then they have the ability to do essentially two factor where you would approve the, a transaction on one device, say your computer. Um, but before it gets sent, you'd also have to prove it on your phone. And the, I think the one reason that we haven't seen these sorts of mechanisms really come to fruition yet is simply because, um, like smart contracts in general are so, uh, early. We're still learning a lot about their solidity and, and how things best tie together and the best security practices. And, you know, obviously with the DAO and some of the other smart contract hacks, it's, it's a terrifying place to be when you're saying, okay, instead of having this private key, we're going to rely on a smart contract because if that smart contract does have a flaw, then you also lose all your money. And it would affect multiple, potentially multiple right. people, not exactly. just one account. But I'm still very hopeful for the future. I think it's the very early days. And I think that we will see these mechanisms come to fruition in a safe and a secure way, in a way that we can trust them. It's just going to, you know, it's, it's, we have to build, you have to start building the foundation and then we'll level up over and over again. So I think this paints a little bit of a picture of what, where you see sort of the, the overall space going, but how does that tie into like what you're working on now? What's like, what's the future of my crypto? So obviously, um, once we get to the point where we trust, I guess, like smart contracts or solidity or whatever you want to call it enough, or we have this mechanism that's just, we're really, really confident in. I think that I'll probably put a lot of energy and resources into developing an amazing user experience for that. You know, in order to get from where we are today to that point, there's a lot of different things that need to happen. So when we talk about the user experience, it's not just the user experience of man- managing private keys or managing the the access to funds. It's also the user experience of sending a transaction of um, things like gas prices and gas limits and um, the data field and you know, whether they want to send a token or, you know, the new, like the new non-fungible tokens or, you know, there's all these different things happening and, and how do you interact with smart contracts and, you know, is the DAP experience ideal right now? Will it be ideal? Those are sort of the questions that we're asking. And so the way that I sort of look at our product and how I make decisions of, of where our product goes is, okay, we can't just live in this ideal future world, right? We can't just look at what 
what's going to be or what the sort of ecosystem is going to look like in five years and be like, okay, let's aim for that and build that. We have to take this very iterative approach that constantly improves every single aspect of our product so that in five years we'll be right there with, you know, all the, the improvements and we'll also be the improvement. So in the short term, you know, we're really focused on, um, right now, sort of like how your account is displayed to you and, and, we're going to kind of flip the whole app on its head. So right now, the first thing you do is you land on the site and you're like, oh, let me unlock my account so I can send a transaction. And that works, but it's also quite backwards. Like if you want to send a transaction, you should probably like, you know, um, already have your account and then you can, you know, make the decision about uh, what you want to send or if you want to shift or swap between two tokens or whatever it is. And then obviously continuing to educate users and finding the correct balance between, you know, educating them about what this stuff is and then abstracting things away. So do we need to tell people what the gas price and the gas limit is and the difference between the two? Or do we just need to remove that completely from their view? Um, and, and that's going to be, I mean, that's been one of the hardest things we've dealt with. And I think it will continue to be something that we iterate on and find the correct balance between because, um, there is value in people understanding the gas, but there's also value in people not having to even know that gas exists. So um, we'll get there. I'm excited. And and I think this the things that I talk about, like in terms of gas and stuff like this applies to every single concept and word in this ecosystem, because everything is new and everything like we love to make up words and concepts. And so I, I'm constantly asking myself, like, do we need, does the user need to know what gas is or should they not see it? Or does the, you know, when they are interacting with a smart contract, what does that look like and feel like? And do they need to understand that they're interacting with a smart contract even? And those types of questions. So I wanted to say thank you so much for sitting down with us. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you very much. And for talking about this UX journey that you have been on. Um, <laughs> I think we can all learn a lot from this and uh, I'm excited to see what you guys do next. Absolutely. Thank you so much again. So to our listeners, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.